In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would all the kids and teens up through the 10th grade please come forward. There it is. I tried. I couldn't get that low. Where's your brother? He's asleep. On your mama's shoulder? Yeah. Good morning. How's everyone? Good. So if I had a box of cereal right here and a container of orange juice and a piece of toast, what would you think of? Breakfast. Breakfast. Because those are breakfast foods, aren't they? So, but if you just had like orange juice by itself, you might not think of breakfast, but when you get um, toast and cereal and orange juice all together, you automatically think about breakfast. I think about breakfast when I have a hand of supplements and medicine and a slim fast in my hand <laughs> and a banana sometimes on my way to work. Um, that's my breakfast. So what, what would you think of if I said, okay, um, you and you and you and you and me, we gather together right here, right now, in the name of Jesus. What would you, it's hard, to, what would you think? Who's with us? Jesus. Jesus. Why? Well, Jesus is with us, right? But especially when you have two, three, four, five people gathered together in Jesus' name. I mean, in the gospel reading just then, when two or three are gathered together in my name, I mean, that's important. I mean, two or three can be gathered together and they say, oh, I wish I uh, could go to, over to um, the Caribbean island and just uh, have a fun day on the beach. And all, all of you agreed to that. Um, I'm not sure that would happen. Because, but Jesus did say where two or three are gathered together, and you ask anything, it will be given to you. But I think he's asking, he's telling us that if we ask something in his name, if we're gathered together and we say, Lord, please be present with us and help us to know what you want us to do, how to go back into the world and how to tell other people about you. Do you think Jesus is going to help us with that? Yes. He promises. He promises he will. He will help us with that. He will help to build his church through you and through you and you and you and me and all of us. But when we're gathered here on a Sunday morning, when two or three are gathered in his name, he promises he will be here with us. He's always with us. We know God is always with us. But he comes in a very wonderful, special, holy, sacramental, biblical way. And he meets us where we are here in church. And that's why it's so very important for us to be together as the body of Christ, as Christians. That's why he wants us to gather together so he can be with us and have fellowship with us and give us grace and the things that we need to hear and to feed upon to receive the nourishment from him to go back out into the world. That's why he calls us here. Week by week by week by week by week by week. By week. 
That's why your mom brings you here every week. She knows you need that nourishment, that spiritual nourishment. And so we come together. We gather together in the name of Jesus. Not so we can get something out of it, but so that we can give to God. We come here to give to God, to surrender ourselves to God. And the wonderful thing about that, because Jesus is with us, because two or three are gathered in his name, when we give to God, God gives back. You know, it's sad that some people come to church anywhere in the world. They go to church so that they can get something, get something out of it. Get something so you can feed me. No, we go to church so we can give to God in worship, in prayer, ourselves to God. And God gives himself back to us. Isn't that wonderful that God does that? That when we gather in the name of Jesus, God gives himself to us. I love that. I live for that. That's what makes my Sunday so special that we can gather together in the name of Jesus and receive from him after we give ourselves to him. You think about that, okay? Just like breakfast, you see the things together. When you see two or three people gathered in the name of Jesus, expect great things, okay? If you want to get a packet from Miss Warner over there, you can get a packet. Y'all can color while you sing over there, okay? <laughs> or if you want to go sit down, you can do that too. Egypt, while you're there, help me out. Pull, pull, pull. <laughs> Is it my eyes? There was a priest who was talking to one of his parishioners and he said, you know, when you get to be my age, I mean, I'm not talking about me because I'm not there yet, but when you, get to, when, you, when you get to be my age, you spend a whole lot more time thinking about the hereafter. The parishioner asked, well, what do you mean by that? And the priest says, well, I often find myself going into a room and thinking, now, what did I come in hereafter? What did the Zen Buddhist monk say to the hot dog vendor? The Zen Buddhist monk, what did he say to the hot dog vendor? Make me one with everything. <laughs> A poster read, God is dead, signed Nietzsche. Someone put graffiti under it. Nietzsche is dead, signed God. <laughs> Let me begin by saying this. What we believe determines how we behave. What we believe determines how we behave. I've said this many times before. You know, we get up in the morning, we put our feet over the side of the bed and we prepare to stand up. Why? Because we believe that the law of gravity is as much in force this brand new morning as it was last night when we went to bed. If we didn't believe that, we would stay right there under the covers. When we leave our home, 
we cross the street if we're walking, we look both ways because we believe that automobiles going at a high rate of speed can do severe damage to our bodies if they collide. What we believe determines how we behave. In the Christian world, we also have a set of beliefs, and what we believe determines how we behave as Christians. In its simplest form, we find these beliefs in what we call the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. I believe that he is the maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son. I believe he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. I believe that he suffered, uh, that he was born by the Virgin Mary and suffered under Pontius Pilate. I believe he, he, he was crucified and died and was buried. I believe he descended into hell. I believe he rose again from the dead. I believe he ascended into heaven. I believe he's seated at the right hand of God. I believe that he will come back to judge us, the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. I believe in the communion of saints. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I believe in the resurrection of the body. And I believe in life everlasting. Now you might be aware that the Apostles' Creed is the oldest and most widely accepted creed within Christendom. It is recognized by all branches of Christianity, Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox. We as Anglicans, we recite the Apostles' Creed every day in our daily office, in morning prayer, in evening prayer, at all of our funerals, at all of our baptisms. On Sunday mornings, on Wednesday evenings, like this morning at the Holy Eucharist, we recite the Nicene Creed, which is the expanded version of the Apostles' Creed. For 2,000 years, the Apostles' Creed has served as a concise, succinct statement of the Christian faith. It is the common heritage of the Christian church. The Apostles' Creed offers a broad survey of Christian doctrine. It starts with creation, the maker of heaven and earth, and it ends with eternal life. That's about as broad as you can get. This creed offers a radical challenge to the skepticism of this generation, and maybe the past generation as well. The people of the world today, they doubt that we can really be certain about anything. As I've said in other sermons, people today have a problem with the notion of absolute truth. Many people in our society do not believe there is absolute truth. And over against this uncertainty, we have the first two words of the creed, I believe. The creed forces us to say, I believe, and that alone is good for the soul. The key phrase of the book of Judges, although written over 3,000 years ago, could have been written last week. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everybody did what they wanted to do because they all believed something different. It would be hard to find a more fitting description of modern-day American life. If you ask people on the street what they believe, you will receive all kinds of answers. I mean, consider this quote from a 
something backpacker from Boston when asked what he believed. He said, I don't know what I believe in, and if I believe, I believe there's some higher power, I think, but I don't know. Like right now, I'm at a point where I don't know what to believe, but I'm open to everything. So I like to believe in everything because I don't know what it is I truly believe in. Now that strikes me as a totally honest statement. And I think he speaks for a whole generation who is ready to believe in everything and in anything. And that's really kind of scary. When you don't know what you believe, you're open to everything. This is one reason why we desperately need the Apostles' Creed. In fact, this is one of the reasons why the Apostles' Creed was formulated in the first place. A guy by the name of Marcion was perhaps one of the most influential figures in the early church history period, although his ideas were rejected completely and condemned by the apostolic fathers of the second century church, and rightly so. Marcion had rejected the idea that the Old Testament God and the New Testament God were the same God, two different gods. The traditional church had, and still does, consider the Old Testament as sacred scripture and assumes that Christianity is a fulfillment of Judaism. And so what Marcion did because of his dualistic, Gnostic, heretical beliefs was to reject the entire Old Testament and settled for only a small portion of the Gospel of St. Luke and only a few of Paul's writings, editing out anything that seemed to be too Jewish. Therefore, the church comes along and begins to formulate into creeds and into the canon of Scripture what the church had already learned from Jesus through the apostles and had always taught up to that time period. Thus we have the Apostles' Creed. And also we have what is known as sacred scripture, the Old and the New Testament, the Bible. So in short, the creed was formulated to help the early church distinguish truth from error and to ensure consistent teaching among all the churches. Now today, the creed stands as an important corrective to the me-centered theology of the present day. And we all have a taste of that within us because we're influenced by our culture. The creed reminds us, though, that truth is not optional. There are boundaries to the Christian faith. Not everything is negotiable. Some things must be believed if, if you're to call yourself a Christian, and yes, you can choose to move beyond those boundaries, but don't call yourself a Christian. A little more of the history of the Apostles' Creed. The word creed comes from the Latin word credo, which means I believe. In the earliest days of the Christian church, what we now know as the Apostles' Creed started as a baptismal formula. The early Christians asked questions like, do you believe in God the Father Almighty? Do you believe he made heaven and earth? Do you believe in Jesus Christ, that he's God's son, that he is the Lord? Do you believe that Christ rose from the dead? Do you believe that he ascended into heaven? 
From those questions, the creed was developed into its current form. Six facts about the creed. First, the creed is very old. Scholars believe that in its earliest form, I mean, aside from scripture where all of it came from, it can be traced back to at least 120 AD in its full form. Second, the creed was not written by the apostles. It's called the Apostles' Creed because it reflects what the apostles taught and what they learned from Jesus. It summarizes apostolic doctrine. Third, the creed is very brief. As I said earlier, our version of the Apostles' Creed contains 110 words. Compare that to the Nicene Creed or to the Athanasian Creed, which contains many times more words. Fourth, the creed is not me-centered, it's God-centered. In fact, it is Trinitarian. The first section deals with God the Father, the second section deals with God the Son, the third section deals with God the Holy Spirit. Fifth, the creed is selective. The creed touches on the central issues of the Christian faith, but there is much that it passes over. The creed doesn't say anything about Satan or angels or demons or predestination or baptism or church government or, or about the second coming. doesn't say anything about that. And sixth, the creed is easy to memorize. Here's a handy way to think about the creed. Let's suppose that you are about to go on vacation and you purchase a book of maps to help you find your way those of you who are older already know that you, you know, maps really came in handy. You don't need maps so much today because you've got the Google Maps. But I just re, uh, re, uh, renewed my membership with AAA again for the umpteenth time, and they sent me a whole book of maps again. And I love it because I love looking at maps. So let's suppose you're about to go on vacation. You get this book of maps, and the book of maps contains separate maps of all 50 states. And there will be smaller insert maps for all of the larger cities in each state. And in the front of the book, there is a large two-page map of the United States. If you want to drive from spring to Sugarland or Katy, the U.S. map is not going to do you any good. And the state map is not really going to help very much either. You're going to have to consult the map of Houston. If you want to drive from Houston all the way to Dallas, you need the state map. But if you want to drive from Texas to California, you're going to have to keep that big map open and use the United States map. Well, the, 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 the Apostles' Creed is like that big map. It gives you the big picture of what Christians believe. We believe more than what the creed says, but we don't believe less than what the creed says. So let's pause for a moment to consider that word believe. The Greek word is pistuo, 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 P-I-S-T-E-U-O which means to believe into someone, to believe into something. In English, the word believe has different meanings. If I say, I believe it's going to rain tomorrow, that's not, not, nothing more than a hunch and a, 
fanciful dream. <laughs> Even though at the men's retreat, we had three hours of solid rain and lightning hit the tree right next to one of our parishioners' cars and took out the electrical system. But we had a lot of rain. I don't think we had a drop at my house. If I say that I believe George Washington was the first president of the United States, that refers to a settled historical fact. But if I say I believe in Jesus with my whole heart, I've made a different sort of statement altogether. So let me illustrate. Let's suppose I go to the doctor. The doctor tells me that I have a life-threatening disease, cancer. And he says he has the chemo that can cure the cancer, but it's very difficult to take and it's likely to make me sick. And if I'm willing to take it, I can be cured of that cancer. Well, in that case, to say I believe in my doctor means something very specific. It doesn't mean I believe he really is a doctor. It doesn't mean I believe he's right when he says I have cancer or even that I believe the chemo can cure me. You don't truly believe in your doctor until you roll up your sleeves and you start taking that life-saving medicine into your veins. Until then, it's just really all talk. To believe in your doctor means to trust yourself completely to his or her care, to accept his or her diagnosis, to put your life in his or her hands. That's faith. Believing in Jesus means to trust him completely with your eternal destiny. It means to trust Christ so completely that if he can't take you to heaven, you're not going to get there. Now, I spoke with a man recently about his father who had just died. And although his father did go to church from time to time, and he often heard about Jesus, the son worried about his father's salvation. And although I could say nothing definite about his father because I just didn't know his dad, I reminded the man that it's not the amount of faith that matters. It's the object of faith that makes all the difference. Faith, the size of a mustard seed, can move a mountain. Weak faith in a strong object matters a whole lot more than strong faith in a weak object. It's not a matter of how much you believe. It's whether or not you're trusting the Lord Jesus Christ to save you. Or as Charles Spurgeon once put it, I know the person into whose hand I have committed my present condition and my eternal destiny. I know who he is. And I therefore, without any hesitation, leave myself in his hands.